Good morning. morning. Welcome. This is Come and Reason uh, Bible study class. We're meeting here in Collegedale, Tennessee this morning. My name is Lori Atkins, filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings. We're happy you're joining us. Uh, Dr. Tim is way up north again this weekend. He's presenting at the Windsor Seventh-day Adventist Church in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. He's doing a God in Your Brain series of seminars. He spoke last night, and he has three or four, I think, talks today. Um, I checked the Windsor <clears throat> uh, website. They do have live streaming capabilities, and they have a YouTube channel, but it looks like they only broadcast their Saturday morning service. So Dr. Jennings does have the sermon at their, I think it's 10.30 or 11 o'clock service today. So I'm guessing that that's going to be recorded and posted. I'm guessing if it is, we'll put it on our Facebook channel. But I didn't see that they were recording any of the other talks. I want to remind you about our Power of Love training and equipping course that's coming up in January 2020, just outside of Dallas, Texas. I don't have the flyers, but you've seen them. Um, As of this past Thursday, we've had 152 people from all around the world that are signed up to attend. You can find out more information, of course, at our website, or you can go to events.comeandreason.com, see the detailed itinerary, all the titles of the presentations, the objectives that we hope to accomplish. There's a list of frequently asked questions. Um, Also, along those lines, if you haven't been to our website recently, comeandreason.com, you should really go. It's getting a little bit of a facelift, a little modern update, look and feel. But behind the scenes, Dean Scott, our webmaster, he's doing an incredible job of updating all of the content and the resources on our website so that they are searchable by keyword or topic. So you can go into the website, put in forgiveness, Put in design law, and it's going to bring back every piece of content, every article, every blog, every video, every lesson, and aggregate it all together by those topics. So that's going to be a huge resource for you to use and to share. So, And you probably have an idea how much content is on our website. There's a ton. So this is going to be a significant amount of work, and the effort's going to be ongoing over the next couple of months. But I encourage you to go take a look. While you're there, check out Dr. Jennings' most recent blogs. He's had some really good ones in the last three or four weeks. He put out a two-parter on the journey of life, finding peace when life is stressful, critical thinking in a confused society. These all have the healing remedy design law concepts woven into relevant, practical, timely areas. A recent blog contained a prayer that was just profound, and I want to use it to open class today. So bow your heads, please. Father, we want our hearts, we want hearts and minds that are sensitive to truth, because all truth leads back to you. Help us see, comprehend, and assimilate your truth at the earliest possible moment that we are capable. Expand our minds to discern ever deeper insights into your kingdom and methods. Change us, take away the longing for selfishness and worldliness, and instill your love for life, health, goodness, and people. May it no longer be our fearful selves who live, but may your character of love live in us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so we're studying lesson two in our quarterly, The Least of These, Ministering to Those in Need. And our title this week is A Blueprint for a Better World. Our memory text says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against anyone among your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That comes from Leviticus 19.18. Just fair warning, we're going to park here for a bit and really try to unpack this love your neighbor as yourself concept further. Does that part of the memory text remind you of any other texts in the Bible? Any other scriptures that sound like that? Two great commandments. Yes. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Where is that? Yes, Matthew 22. Which is the greatest commandment of the law, in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That story is also repeated in Mark and Luke. Any others that you can think of? What about the, the rich young ruler that came to, to Christ and asked him, what, what must I do to be saved? What did God tell him? Well, first he told him to keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler asked, which ones? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12.33 says, to love him with all your heart with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Romans 13, 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8 If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Wow. Almost sounds like a theme. It does. Why would this same concept be so consistently repeated throughout the whole of scripture? Because that's the character of God. God is love. So why would his words not reflect that? Exactly. But we get the feeling that this message is somehow important, somehow deserves our attention. And maybe he knew we weren't going to get it, that we needed some of that repetition. So Mrs. White, one of the founders of our church, says in several places, the divine law requires that you love your neighbor as yourself. Without the exercise of this love, the highest profession of faith is mere hypocrisy. That is, we are to deal with our neighbors in everything just as we would wish them to deal with us. If we wish them to act fairly and justly toward us, then we should act fairly and justly toward them. We are simply to do as we would be done by. What is the divine law? Why does it require that we love our neighbor as ourselves. It is. And it's the basis for life. 
It's the protocol against which, uh, upon which life was built. This law of love requires that we love our neighbor for the same reason the law of respiration requires that we breathe. But who's our neighbor? Oh, we're so going to get there. Hold that. Ah, she's reading my notes. And who are we talking about here? Is this the people that live next door to me? It can be. Can be. Or just the people in my, in my subdivision, in my neighborhood? Well, that makes it easy. Wouldn't it? <laughs> so I have some more quotes from one of the founders of our church that might help us figure out exactly who our neighbor is. This one says, God's law requires that justice and right be exercised between man and his fellow man. It requires that we shall not injure our neighbor in his property, his feelings, his health, or his good name. It requires compassion for the afflicted, even if he be our enemy, that in all our associations with our fellow beings... We shall show the same love and care that we would wish to have exercised toward ourselves. Uh Uh-oh. Another quote. Jesus related the parable of the Good Samaritan and clearly showed that he is our neighbor who most needs our charity and help. We are to practice the commandments of God and stand true to the relation which God has designed shall exist between man and his fellow man. It was never God's purpose that society should be separated into classes, that there should be an alienation between the rich and the poor, the high and the low, the learned and the unlearned. But the practice of separating society into distinct circles is becoming more and more decided. Think about when this was written. And has it gotten worse? God designed that those to whom he entrusted talents of means, ability, and gifts of grace should be good stewards of his beneficence and not seek to reap all the advantages for themselves. God does not estimate man by the amount of wealth, talent, or education that he may have. He values man in proportion as he becomes a good steward of his mercy and love. Now notice what she says. It was never God's purpose that society should be separated into classes, that there should be an alienation between the rich and the poor, the high and the low, the learned and the unlearned. Does she say that both groups shouldn't exist? No. But she says that there should be no alienation. There shouldn't be this separating into classes. Not that you won't have classes. You're not going to have everybody being equal. But it's how we treat each other. One more quote. In his teaching, he ever presented the law as a divine unity, showing that it is impossible to keep one precept and break another, for the same principle runs through all. Man's destiny will be determined by his obedience to the whole law. What's determining man's obedience? Is this not God's not judging and dictating his destiny? our choices. It is not possible for the heart in which Christ abides to be destitute of love. If we love God because he first loved us, we shall love all for whom Christ died. 
these are our neighbors. Yes. Well, I was thinking, I'm thinking you're talking about the differences in rich and poor. And when Jesus came here, he became the poorest of them all. Mm-hmm. And his father was the richest of them all. Yes. When I look at it that way. And they had a relationship that was unbreakable. And that's supposed to be our example. And were, was there alienation between those classes in the community which Jesus came into? Yes. And what was he always doing? He was always going to the outcast, to the underprivileged, to the marginalized. And he was ridiculed for it. People couldn't imagine why he would eat with sinners or tax collectors or prostitutes. Continuing on. Yes. Or women. Or women, exactly. To be clear, he also ate with Pharisees. He did. And the learned and the wealthy uh, equally. Yes. He was no respecter of class or or person. His purpose was to destroy the misconceptions about God that created the classes. Yes. And the the alienation. The Pharisees thought that because they were wealthy, they were favored. And they thought that because the poor were poor, then they were sinful or, or living with some unconfessed grievance and God was punishing them for this. The poor thought that too. That was the dominant paradigm that if you're wealthy, well, then God loves you and you must be right with him. And if you're poor or sick, then it's your fault. Thank goodness we're past that, right? Yes. I'm not contradicting none of that. As far as neighbors go. I mean, in Ecclesiastes, it's telling us it's a time to hate and it's a time to love. In Psalms 139, it speaks of having, uh, it's quoted, it's quoted in this Bible in a different way, but it's having a justified hate. How does, how does that go into it, loving everybody if it's a time for us to hate? I'm guessing it depends on, on what we're hating. I'm going to read this version. Yes. This version says it. What's the verse? It's Psalms 139, verse 22. It's in the clear word. It says, I hate them with a justified hatred and count them as my enemies. What's the context? For me reading it, it's it's speaking of people that's not our neighbors, individuals. Let's think about David's context, though. David's writing this. I'm guessing he's talking about the people who are hunting him down and trying to kill him. I don't know that for sure, but he wrote lots of places in there. He, wa- he wrote that he wanted to kill his enemies and smash their babies on a rock. You know, verse 19 says, Oh Lord, I wish you would take care of my enemies. I wish those bloodthirsty men would stop bothering me. These visitors from other countries talk against you every chance they get, and in private they curse your name. I hate them. I hate what they're saying about you. From what I'm understanding, it's people that that's against God, and he hates them. Again, I think this is a man after God's own heart. He is pouring out his heart to God and saying, this is how I really feel. I can't stand that they're misrepresenting you. I can't stand that they're lying about you. I want you to take them out. And then he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. You know what I mean? Search me and see the wicked way in me. So I, and Dr. Jennings wrote a blog on anger, righteous indignation or, or anger. 
Is it okay? Is it right? When, is, when does it make sense to have that? I, I think there are times when then that's a, an appropriate emotion. But again, this, this fight for self, it's all fear-based. It's all selfish, save self-based. And this is what he's trying to heal in us. This is what he's trying to turn. And we're going to talk more about it. This, this is a struggle. I am, to, I am not there yet. There, I have a quote coming up where it says, it will be as easy for us to love others as it was for Christ to go around doing good. Do you think he had to make an effort at going around doing good? Or was it just what he was? It's what he did. This is what he wants to, to rewrite. He wants to rewrite that code in us. Yes, Karen. We're constantly being struggling between behavior and like mindset. And the mindset, I think, is what David struggled yes. out maybe. And maybe what God was trying to teach him is right. hate what they're doing and what they're saying, but the person is still my child. David understood God's power. His capability was to take these people out. He didn't understand why God would, would allow them to keep running free and misrepresenting him and lying about him. He hated that. He didn't understand why God wouldn't take care of that and eliminate the issue. Somebody else had a comment. Yeah, I think, um, I think we confuse like the Gospels are straight from Jesus. And a lot of the Old Testament is what people were doing kind of haphazardly in their own um, in, in their own flaws, and uh, you know, whenever I listened to David, I didn't quite understand it. But that, those are not words from God. That's just him struggling with his own demons. Uh, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that what David is saying, because he wants to, um, you know, smite his enemies or whatever he wants to do, that's that's not really God telling him that this is okay. Right. Like I said, I think it's more him being completely honest and laid bare and pouring out his heart, because God knows how we feel anyway. I think this is an example for us. I think God wants us to be that open and honest with him in our prayers. And he promises to acknowledge those, those inklings and those instincts in us and to heal them and correct them. Yes, Eve? You know, the Bible also says that in Ephesians 6 that we do not struggle against flesh and blood. Yes. And then in Romans, we're reminded that um, we're to hate what is evil. We're not to hate the people. Yeah. We think of enemies as people who are against us, but that is not the enemy. Yeah. And if we think of, of it that way, then it makes sense when God says, love your enemies, do good to them. Right. Because in doing that, you could win them over. And that is so godlike. Exactly. It is what we he does. his enemies and he won us over. Well said. I'm continuing on with this quote. Back to, we cannot come in touch with divinity without coming in touch with humanity. Oh, get your mind around that. We cannot come in touch with divinity without coming in touch with humanity. For in him who sits upon the throne of the universe, divinity and humanity are combined. Connected with Christ, we are connected with our fellow men by the golden links of the chain of love then the pity and compassion of Christ will be manifest in our life. We shall not wait to have the needy and unfortunate brought to us. We shall not need to be entreated to feel for the woes of others. 
It will be as natural for us to minister to the needy and suffering as it was for Christ to go around doing good. Wherever there is an impulse of love and sympathy, wherever the heart reaches out to bless and uplift others, there is revealed the working of God's Holy Spirit. In the depths of heathenism, men who have had no knowledge of the written law of God, who have never even heard the name of Christ, have been kind to his servants, protecting them at the risk of their own lives. Their acts show the working of a divine power. The Holy Spirit has implanted the grace of Christ in the heart of the savage, quickening his sympathies contrary to his nature, contrary to his education. The light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world is shining in his soul, and this light, if heeded, will guide him right to the feet of the kingdom of God. That's from Christ Object Lessons 385. What about that? So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor, perhaps we could say, who is a Christian? I'll give you an example. Let's imagine there's a ship sailing from the U.S. to England. It hits an iceberg. The ship is sinking. The people are frantic to find seats on a lifeboat. The last lifeboat is about to be lowered over the side. It's already completely full. When they find a child on the ship, a priest refuses to give up his seat. A pastor and a theology professor also refuse. But a homosexual man who lived an active homosexual life gets off the lifeboat and gives up his seat for the boy. Who in this parable is the Christian? Who is like Christ? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Do you feel like you have a better idea, clearer picture of who your neighbor is? Yes? No? Okay, so what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Doesn't that smack of selfishness? I thought we were supposed to be getting rid of selfishness. We're supposed to be transformed. Absolutely. Can people who don't love themselves actually love others? No. Why? Because they're so totally focused on themselves. Yes. And you can't give what you don't have. If a person doesn't have a healthy self-love, valuing themselves for who they are as a child of God, at peace with themselves and with God, then they are not whole on the inside. They are insecure. They are fearful of rejection. And they don't possess a healthy love to give to others. Instead, such people generally seek to get from others. As Linda said, they're self-focused. They want to get from others to fill the void and what's missing in them. So they generally seek to get love, reassurance, acceptance, validation, praise. Those who don't have healthy love seek to get from others rather than seek to give to others. And thus, 
They're unable to love others well. We are unable to love others well until we are first healed in heart and mind by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Yes, Linda. I knew somebody really well who, who felt if you have them at a party at your house, you had to actually physically come over, put your hand on, say, I'm so glad you're here. If you had a huge house full of people, you still had to do that. Right. Or they felt like you didn't like it or you didn't want to be around it. Even though there was nothing negative, mm-hmm. it was like he needed that attention. He always felt like people didn't like him and didn't want to be around him, but nobody felt that way. Yeah. He felt that way, and then that's the way he saw everybody else. And we do, we do project. It's much easier, I think, for us to see in others the flaws that we know we have in ourselves. That's the plank and the splinter analogy. Understand also an appropriate definition of love. Mm-hmm. Love does what's in someone's best interest. So an appropriate love for yourself is you do what's in your particular best interest. That means eating healthy. That means rest. It means growing in a knowledge of God. That's what's in your best interest. It doesn't mean giving yourself everything you want. It means doing what's in your, quote, best interest. Yes. If we're supposed to love others like ourselves, and we're supposed to love ourselves to love others, then from these two statements... The situation when I sacrifice my love, my life for someone else is over delivered. Because if I sacrifice my life for someone else, that means I love someone else more than myself. But I supposed to love my neighbor like myself. So you see the conflict? I do, but I also see where we're told in Revelation the people that are healed and perfect enough to see Christ as he is, will not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So this inherent urge to go right up to the line, but save myself, is going to be purged from us, which I admit is beyond my comprehension. If you imagine that analogy of somebody holding your head underwater and you have a knife... You have the ability to make it stop to where that urge would not be there if you know that you can save the person by giving up your own life. So I, admit, I agree it's contradictory to every inherent instinct that we know, but that's what he's, that's what he's trying to do in us, I think. I think Christ himself may have struggled with that same. Yes, life. that was his temptation. And yet, he knew that... I believe that Christ died by two different deaths on the cross. I so do, it's a different story. We cannot do that. Okay? Okay, I, I respectfully disagree. I think he died one death. He died the death of sleep. The, okay, then why he said, uh, Father, Father, why you left? It's a witnessing of second death. And this was the actual payment for our sinful life. He died by second death. Death instead of us. No. I respectfully Seventh-day disagree, Adventist but that's okay. Teaches that. Big pardon? I think Seventh Day Adventist Church teaches that. Well, they may, but I, uh, I disagree with them also. Yeah. <laughs> you think about the contrast between. You want to take this? 
I'll help Simple you. The question. Well, no, think about the okay. Think about the contrast between labor like yourself. If I'm, if I'm sacrificing my life, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I love my neighbor more than myself. <laughs> so in Scripture, John thirteen thirty four, he says that a new understanding of Moses' command I give you: love one another as I have loved you. So if we represent as Christ did, as He loved. He sacrificed himself for this. Yeah. It defines that commandment in greater detail. So he's giving you a deeper understanding. So if we follow after Christ, his love was to sacrifice yourself. I agree. And I think if I asked any parent in this room, if there were something you could do to save your child, but it would kill you, it would cost you your life, would you be willing to do it? Love your neighbor more than yourself. Yeah, but I'm just saying that he, Jesus, what I understand Jesus' is, um, uh, uh, comment was is he was trying to make clarification with that by saying, a greater understanding than I give to you. I mean, I see where your, your perspective that that can be like, okay, I'm not going to kill myself, and then that's a contradictory, but Jesus is saying, hey, let me... Let me explain that a little bit further. So he is our true um, uh, perfection of love, and that's who I would have to follow. So if you're not loving yourself, can you love someone else? No. Oh, no, we already established that. Yeah. yeah. Another point. Yeah. When you love yourself less than other and sacrifice your life for our, uh, other uh, benefit. That means that you love someone else more than yourself, which is impossible. We just established it. Do you want to others as you have to do you? Do you love your children more than yourself? Do you love your children's life more than your own life? Would you give your life for your child? Hmm? I'm a physicist. In what units you compare love? When you, when you ask more or less, you're supposed to establish some units for comparison. Would you be willing so there are no units to, to, to measure love. Would you be willing to lay down your life for your child? So that's where she was headed to when I think she was interrupted. Go ahead, Lori. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were able to, if your child was sick and you were able to cure or heal your child, but it would cost you your life, would you be willing to do that? Probably. This is the love. This is what motivated Christ. He knew he could procure the remedy for our terminal condition. For his children's terminal condition, but that it would cost him his life in order to procure it. And he, for the glory set before him, he chose to endure the cross. Yes? First of all, I think, like, I'm an employer. I have employees mm -hmm. that have no idea why I do what I do sometimes. So I think we're kind of like that with Christ. I think to try to understand what he was suffering and going through, he had different priorities. Exactly. I don't think he came here to save himself his physical pain. I think for him, he was desperate to save as many people as possible. Yep. So I think, first of all, we can't quite understand what he was trying to do in measurement of what we understand. So I think, I think there's a struggle there. The other thing is um, when Mary um, was taking her, you know, she was a prostitute, so her uh, tool of the trade was perfume, very expensive, mm -hmm. years worth of wages. <clears throat> and when she was dumping it on Jesus' feet, you know, when I first heard, you know, Judas saying, what are you doing? Um, you're just being stupid. And, she, and he said, let her do what she needs yeah. to do because, you know, 
the poor will always be with you. I didn't quite get that until recently, and I think what he was trying to say is, what's the point of being sacrificial to faceless people when you can't even have a relationship with a person right now? Yes, and connect. But to take that analogy on, what, else, what did he say right after that? He said, those who are forgiven much, love much. So I think ultimately it is a selfish act to sacrifice yourself because if your ultimate goal is to be with God and you don't understand everything about it, then you're going to try to do the highest honor for God. Yeah. Oh, I do think it's all about the heart motivation. There's no doubt. Yes. Well, Moses was a good example. Um, you know, at first he was killing people to mm-hmm. get to the, you know, to get to the truth, to get things right. Yes. But as later on, when God said, get away from these people, let me kill them, <laughs> you know, the Israelites were doing such bad things. Right. Moses said, take me out of the book of life. Save them. Absolutely. And we, There's an example of somebody who looks at life as not just this 80 years or whatever on earth to say, mm-hmm. your life is actually eternal yes. if you're a Christian. The little snippet of life you have here on earth is almost nothing. It's dust. And so saving your own life for this earth and losing it for yeah. eternity is one of the things the Bible discusses a lot of. And you'll notice Paul, Moses, Jesus, these various ones who come to a point where they are willing to sacrifice anything for the salvation of others right. has the bigger picture of what love, what loving yourself is. And I think it's significant that we see that exact transformation in all of these leaders in the Bible. Moses is one from a murderer to being willing to give up his eternal life. We see it in David murdering Uriah to a complete turnaround. It's a 180. Paul, the same way, persecuting, killing Christians for the kingdom, he thought, to being turned down to where he would gladly give up his life to save his fellow, his fellow Jews. Yes, Ken? I just want to interject briefly that when we have conversations or discussions like this, we are going full on into what Tim refers to as dissonance. When he, when he brings out a lot of these things as variations from the lesson or when we bring them out as variations in the way we may think at our various stages along the journey that we have, there's dissonance there. It's, it's just impossible to avoid dissonance in life because yeah. everybody's nose begins somewhere and yours ends somewhere also. <laughs> and if you get too close... You're going to have this. So this is why we were... But we've also been taught cognitive dissonance is healthy. Of course. It's when the, the comfort zone starts to get mm, stressed. For people who don't approach things in this academic or intellectual way, you also have to learn their language. Yeah, Which is Absolutely. the street language. And their language comes very a lot a lot closer to a very physical and at many times a very violent language. So this is why it's important for us to get things right here, but it's also important for us to have an experience with that faceless person mm-hmm. that our, our friend here just mentioned. Yeah. In the practical realm. All right, so let's move on to what does it mean? Russell already touched on this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Is love only an emotion or a feeling, or does love cause action? 
And what type of action? Beneficent, other-centered, outward-moving, unselfish actions. Can you love others in this way if you are incapacitated? No, we talked about this. In order to love others, well, you have to maintain self-care. Your own wellness and health, and thus before you can love others, you must first possess something worth sharing or giving to others. Some examples, can you teach someone to read if you are illiterate? Not so much. Can you teach people the truth about God if you don't know God? You cannot genuinely love others if you don't have love in your heart. So we must first be converted in our own hearts to a genuine love and trust relationship with Christ and really know him before we can be most effective in his cause. Now notice I said most effective because it's not a prerequisite. God in his infinite wisdom can use many things and can use us in any flawed state to advance his kingdom, including speaking through a donkey, if you remember that, which is not so far away from some of us sometimes. We must be in a state of health in order to be capable of providing to others. All right, so let's get more practical, more specific. In this class, we've learned that love always does what's in the best interest of the other person. But what does this look like in reality? And what are some of the obstacles to loving others in this way? Does anyone wrestle with this? We've talked about the dissonance and the... It goes against our urge. Remember, it's going to be as natural for us to minister to the needy and suffering as it was for Christ to go about doing good. Have mercy. Okay, so let's talk about several types of obstacles that might prevent or impede us from loving others, loving our neighbors as ourselves. So there's at least two sides. We've got obstacles in our own hearts and minds. Fear, selfishness, distrust, prejudices and biases. We might be fatigued. We might just be apathetic and not care. We might be ignorant and not know that someone's in need. We could believe lies. We could have beliefs about the other person. Again, this other person might be our enemy. This person might have betrayed or hurt us. So we might believe that the other person deserves something other than love. We also might have beliefs and suspicions that there's not really a need and you're being duped or swindled. Same with the other person. The other person's going to have obstacles in their heart and mind. They could also be afraid, also selfish, also distrusting. And they might see your efforts to help or see your acts of love as manipulation. They could be prejudiced or biased. They could also have false beliefs and believe lies. They may think love looks like being hit or being abused. They may think love looks like physical intimacy only. Or that love is being liked or being popular. They also may be injured. They may believe they don't deserve love. They don't deserve your love. They're too sinful to ever be loved. They're too ugly, too dirty, too worthless. So we got the two sides. Then we got situational uh, obstacles. You got proximity. You may be separated by the from the person in need by time or space. 
You may have the absolute inability to help, just like we talked about trying to help someone to read if you're illiterate. The child, a child may need help with their calculus homework. Not going to be much help. Somebody may need help repairing a car. Or you may lack the physical ability. Somebody needs help moving, rearranging furniture, and you've got a bad back. Somebody may need financial help, and you don't have any money. You may also be obstructed by some other force. You may be physically restrained or have illnesses or other obligations. But even in all of these situations, what can we still provide? We can still provide love. We can still provide understanding. We can still provide encouragement. We can still pray for them. And this is not all we can do is pray for them. It's the thing we can do is pray for them. I mean, remember in this class we've talked about quantum entanglement and the vibrations and how we are all connected and that you can physically change, measurably change another person's DNA with thoughtful, good-intentioned, loving prayer. That's remarkable. So we're starting to see how obstacles between us and the other person and maybe some tough situations, and we didn't even start talking about political differences or social media comments and other things that divide us today. You can see why connecting with and really loving our neighbors as ourselves can be so difficult. Lord, help us. Okay. We want to truly love our neighbors. We want to help and always do what's in their best interest. So what does it mean to help someone? It does. And what are some reasons not to help someone in need? You don't want to enable them to continue unhealthy practice. Correct. Were there people in need who Jesus did not help? More than likely. But they were in need. Why didn't he help them? Because of entanglements, perhaps. Unnecessary entanglements. Yes. There's the story of John the Baptist. Jesus didn't rescue him from prison. He's his own cousin. Yes, exactly. What about when the story when he went back to his hometown and there were a bunch of sick people? Remember? He couldn't do any miracles there. Why not? It was the lack of their faith. <clears throat> yes. They didn't want his help. They couldn't see past who they thought he was, and so they probably didn't even ask for the help. Exactly. So are there people in need today that we are unable to help? Should we force our help onto such people? Whom should we seek to help? Simply those that are in need, or those in need who recognize their need and who permit us to help them? Just a quick distinction here. You know, I also have had a lot of people working for me that had to have help of one sort or another. Some of them I took as far as I could possibly go personally. And then it was up to them to make some decisions mm -hmm. with the regional services, like either homeless services or whatever, to move forward. Right. And if you are doing it personally, you can't get the collective help of other agents. Oh, absolutely. So you have to create a distinction 
of where you are personally and where you can go corporately yes. with the community. Agreed. And again, it depends on the kind of help needed. Yes. I honestly think that the most vivid example of how uh, Jesus helped was in a situation when a woman approached him asking for help and he refused. But then she started arguing with yeah. him and showed her faith. Yeah. And then he decided to help her. And her persistence. I think this is the best example from the whole Bible. Because she actually showed her faith yes. arguing with him. I'm pretty sure Jesus knew what he was going to do. Yeah, exactly. He was going to help her. Yes. Just using this as an example right. to his disciples. Often he would say what they were thinking to get to say, this is what you think. Yes. But in reality, let me draw her out. Right. You'll see that even this person who's willing to be compared to a dog. This was a Samaritan woman who said even. Yes. Yes. You know, he was trying to draw out a, a, an illustration for yeah. this woman. He knew he was going to heal. He knew she had faith. Yeah. He just needed her to exhibit that and to use it as an example for the learners around him. Right. No, I think you're exactly right. And he was bringing to light the, the prejudice and the bias that was in the minds of everybody that was standing around. They all thought she didn't deserve help. That's what they thought of Samaritans. So I want to go through a few should I help scenarios. And you tell me what you think. So if you were here last week, or if you listened to last week's lesson, if you weren't, you really should. But we remember we talked about the apparent homeless person on the interstate exit ramp with the will work for food sign and wondered, should I help? Do you remember what we came up with? We came up with our help may actually do more harm than good, depending on what the need is. That since we may not really know if that need is genuine, it probably makes more sense to focus on helping folks who we know are in need. And that could be our own family or friends. If you belong to a church, they usually always have a list of, of people or families who are in need. We have an amazing resource in this community, the Samaritan Center. I guarantee you they have people who they know are in need. Ask the Holy Spirit to send people who are in need to cross your path. And I guarantee you he'll make those divine appointments. We also concluded that we cannot make a cookie cutter rule and say, I'm always going to help or I'm never going to help. Or even what that help looks like. We have to use our wisdom, our judgment, and be open to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Yes. I think many times when we run across people like those, you have to sit there and look at them while you're polite. It's a feeling of guilt. If you, haven't, if you aren't already involved in doing something constructive, for the people who are less fortunate, or if you don't already have a commitment somehow, then you're going to say to yourself, you know, I haven't, I haven't done anything for anybody for a long time. So you hand them the two bucks, and it, and it goes to the 2000 or whatever that they can make in, in that week. So what we came up with last week about being um, impressed by the Holy Spirit is critical, obviously, if you don't already have some involvements and, and have committed yourself, you're going to be batted around between the Holy Spirit and your set feelings of guilt. 
try to decide, you know, where you want to end up. Whether you want to feel guilty all the time, <laughs> you want to feel like you're led by the Holy Spirit. If any of you have ever traveled internationally to second or third world countries, or even been in the poorer parts of this country, if you're the least bit discerning, you can see a, 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 there's, a, there's a different look in the, in the eyes of someone who is <clears throat> walking to the edge of, of despair's cliff and thinking about jumping. There's a different look than the guy holding the sign in a, uh, a green army jacket uh, at the mall exit. They're, they're wildly different. And, and if you're the least bit discerning, you can flesh that out. Personally, I don't feel guilty for not giving the guy money at the, at the freeway exit. I, I, I think that's actually a, um, it's a misplaced guilt. It's illegitimate guilt is what we call it. Well, that's just me. Well, I walk around with a target on my back. When I go to um, either malls or, or parking lot, some person always feels like they can talk to me, you know, and, and if they want five bucks to get to Knoxville because their gas, you know, their car's out of gas and all that. They don't, they don't have a problem asking me for that because apparently I'm not that intimidating. And so I don't want to be intimidating, but I also don't want to be taken advantage of. So after about the fourth or fifth time, this one gentleman over off the gun barrel approached me for a few dollars for gas. I said, look, I said, I have a job. I said, why don't you get a job? And so the, the point is that we're always going to have those people, and we want to try to show some kind of some sort of kindness as far as possible. But we also want to show that you know we have standards that we we would like people to try to try to keep. Have you ever asked them to calculate the odds? of them running out of gas in an area where there are six gas stations <laughs> right right there. Ask them to calculate the odds of that sometime. Well, we've talked about what help looks like and that love always does what's in the best per- interest of the other person. Again, if you haven't listened to last week's lesson, you need to. Do you remember we also talked about the importance of having constructive work, industry, purpose, People who are capable and how demoralizing and damaging and destructive it is to take that away from people who are capable. In that case, that doesn't look like help. That doesn't look like love. It's damaging. All right, what about if you're in a restaurant? Do we have another comment? Yes. My comment, you mentioned the Samaritan Center. Mm -hmm. When you refer a person to the Samaritan Center, they sit with a professional social worker. Yep looks up on service point, which is connected to all the other agencies in the community. It allows the social worker to look and see where they have not gotten help, where they might get help, in addition to the Samaritan Center. Yep. But it also displays where they might be working the system. And then also they help with not only emergencies, but job searches, mm-hmm. all of those kind of things. And, and it's a high... High stewardship of the resources yeah. that are given to the Samaritans. Thank you. It's very. I mean, they are an amazing organization. They really are. They did a great job over there. Is there another comment? No. So we're in the restaurant. What oh yeah, you're in a restaurant. You see a couple. Look like a married couple arguing. Should you offer to help? No. <laughs> but they clearly need help. Should you offer? No. 
What about you're in the grocery store and you're in the candy aisle and there's a parent with a child who obviously wants some candy and they're in the floor throwing a fit. Should you step up and offer to help? Help them parent? You mean spank the child? (laughs) (laughs) No. What about a family member who has a sickness or an injury who needs help? Tina could speak to this probably. What then? How do you define help and where do you draw the line in helping them? Is it helpful to help them do everything? No. When dealing with someone recovering from injury, is it more helpful to do as much as you can for them or as little as possible for them? Why? They won't grow. They won't grow. They won't heal. They won't recover. The rehab is the same idea as children. Yes. You should only do as much as they can't do. If you're doing everything for them all the time, what adult will they turn out to be but a taker and someone who expects everybody to keep doing for them that which parents have done for them their yes. whole life? There needs to be a transition of authority between the parent and responsibility between the parent and the child or the nurse and the, and the patient. There are things a patient or a child cannot do. Right. That's when you should pitch in. But there's other, even if it means standing there, you know, and you know you can do it so much. I know. You know, and hands tied. Doing it very well. But yes. You've got to let them do their thing in order to grow. If you take over, you, you incapacitate that person for their whole future. And that's not good parenting, and it's not no. nursing. And aren't we starting to see what kind of adults children in that situation will turn out to be? So, yeah, our goal in this situation is to help the person recover as much of their autonomy, their independence, their strength as possible. So you give as little help as possible. In other words, you require the person to do as much for themselves as they are reasonably able to do, lest you delay their recovery or, even worse, foster their decline. I should have apologized. I knew we weren't going to get to any of the days of the lesson, but... I'll wrap up. This reminds me, if we talked in this class, did anybody watch the movie The Miracle Worker? It was a story of Helen Keller and her teacher, Annie Sullivan. Do you remember what state Helen Keller was in when Annie Sullivan first showed up? Wild child. She was a wild child. Like, disheveled, matted hair, running around the table, sticking her hands in everybody's plate and food. She was deaf, dumb, and blind, if you remember. And she was, what, maybe 10 years old um, and and had never been able to see, hear, or communicate. So how did Mrs. Sullivan treat Annie, or treat Helen? How did she help her? Teaching her sign language in her hand obviously was the the breakthrough. But she also required her to be courteous and well-behaved. And if you remember that she had to be, she had to remove Helen from her family in order to accomplish that, in order to keep her family from helping. So helping does not actually mean doing what the other person wants, but what is actually helpful in reality. All right, so we're over time. Man, there was lots more I wanted to get to. So I'll wrap, wrap up with this. Maybe the most important thing to remember from this second part of our memory text, to love, others, love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is a command, or even the parable of the Good Samaritan. It does not say anything about 
how doing this, how our works or efforts will help to save us. But the emphasis is rather on how a converted or saved person on the path to healing ought to live. This is how they know we are Christians. There is an inextricable link between these two important commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot love God and treat other people, our neighbors, poorly. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, thank, we are so thankful that we have a fix for our condition. Some of the stuff that we read and we hear, we just cannot imagine in and of ourselves. So we're grateful that we don't have to do it in and of ourselves. So we ask for just an outpouring of your spirit um, to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our instincts, and to present us with opportunities to show your love. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.